This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Convicts at the state prison in Huntsville, Texas, are still holding 11 persons hostage. This morning, prison officials resumed negotiations with the convicts, hoping the siege would be over soon. But as the stalemate continued, those hopes began to fade. In the stultifying summer of 1974, the drug lord Fred Gomez Carrasco was serving a life sentence in the Walls Unit in Huntsville, the oldest prison in Texas, when he made the ultimate decision. Dead or alive, I'm going out. He was holed up in the Walls Unit library with his two henchmen. They had captured 11 prison employees, most of them teachers and librarians, and Carrasco was willing to kill them, one by one, if his demands for freedom were not met. Finally, after two unbelievably intense days of negotiations, prison director Jim Estelle seemed to relent. He would provide Carrasco with a getaway car. There was only one catch. One of the things that the prison people told us was that that they had offered you, as they phrased it, transportation away from the unit and that you had flatly refused. Now, what, what's your side of that story? This is from an interview with Carrasco himself, conducted by a journalist for the newspaper in Austin, Texas. They talked on the phone, just one recording from an incredible trove of audio the Texas prison system taped during the siege. Here's Carrasco in his own words. Well, let's put it this way. What they proposed was that they would uh, give me uh, safe conduct or guarantee me safe conduct to the outskirts of Huntsville, which I would say is about four or five miles from here, from where I'm at. Okay. But without hostages. So that would mean I would just be uh, a rabbit in a plateau. I'm sorry, a rabbit in a what? In a plateau. Or in a field, or yeah, whatever right. you want to call it. And I mean, uh, anybody with a little... I mean, you don't, you, don't, you don't even need to be a person with any brain at all. I mean, to know that uh, this is not uh, a sensible thing. Now, now I've told him that I'm willing to leave seven hostages, take four, and they will be released unharmed. There was no way Carrasco, the wily self-made kingpin of an international drug cartel, would give up his defenses that easily. But Carrasco was always willing to negotiate. He had a counteroffer, and it seemed like a pretty good compromise from his point of view. Carrasco would release seven of the hostages, but he would keep four behind and he would take them with him during his escape from the library. They would be his human shields. Surprisingly enough, the group of hostages had already talked amongst themselves and they agreed on which four would abscond with Carrasco. They weren't sure about his plans. Carrasco had idly talked about fleeing to Cuba or else to Mexico, where he'd lived as an outlaw and cartel boss. Really, the hostages had no idea where they'd end up, or whether they'd even make it out alive. Anywhere was better than stuck in the prison library, surrounded by the tall red brick walls of the Walls Unit Prison in Huntsville, Texas. The captives had a selfless streak, too. 
Being together through such a hugely traumatic ordeal had already brought them closer together, and some were willing to sacrifice their lives for the good of the whole. We feel that four people leave the country with this man that will save all the others. And if we don't come back, then still we've saved that many rather than all of us dying together. Because uh, I tell you something, he is not a stupid man, he's very smart. And even I'll agree with him. If he leaves this unit without us, he may as well just open the door and let us go, because he's not going to live. Hostage Novella Pollard was the assistant principal in the prison school system. She was one of the four who volunteered to stay behind and go along with Carrasco if the prison would allow him to leave. Surrounded by the constant threat of death, Pollard was exasperated by her dithering bosses in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, TDC for short. She directed most of her ire at TDC director Jim Estelle. I mean, TDC can't get in this building, and we can't get out of this building. Unless Mr. Estelle gives the things they want. That's the only way we're going to get out of this building, right? It, it seems like TDC is not going to come through. They, they keep saying they can't get this and they can't get that, and here we sit. And the, I, the whole thing is people outside or people in the administration don't seem to think that these men mean what they say. Well, now, we've been up here, what, four days with these men? They mean what they say. They don't care if they die. They don't care. And they're not going to be blamed for that. The state's going to be blamed. I mean, this is the way they look at it. You know, if the state had come through, they wouldn't have had to kill us. But they're, but they're going to kill us. I mean, it's, this is very definite. And, and this is the thing we can't seem to get through to Mr. Estelle. They keep to see, you know, keep thinking they're not going to do it. But they are going to do it. I mean, we're with these men, and we're convinced. Fred Carrasco had another clever move up his sleeve. Why not swap hostages? Carrasco would gladly turn over Novella Pollard and the other women, and just the women, in exchange for Director Estelle and other top prison officials, including the warden, Hal Husbands. This, as you might expect, was an offer that Jim Estelle rejected. Along with Ms. Pollard, the four hostages who agreed to flee the country with Fred Carrasco and his sidekicks were Father Joseph O'Brien, He's the prison chaplain who'd volunteered to become a hostage in the first place, and Yvonne Bezida and Judy Stanley. They were both prison librarians. Again, Jim Estelle said thanks, but no thanks. And uh, these rednecks here weren't even uh, willing to uh, cooperate for something, I mean, to go along with uh, something like that. They thought that I, that I was bluffing, which I'm not. At the risk of being callous, Fred, have you, have you considered, say, shooting one of the hostages to tell, just to show the prison people you're not bluffing? Yes. Yeah. Whoa. What a question. Why not just kill some folks? Show them you really mean business. With frustrations roiling, it's a wonder Carrasco didn't take the bait. He was too cool for that. Yes, but uh, I've uh, held myself back and I've held my companions back because actually it's hard to shoot an innocent person. But this recknet, I think that's the only way they were going to understand. How long are you willing to, to hold out? Well, uh, that would be hard to say. So you, you just don't know yet? I don't know. I mean, uh, in my end tonight, if they storm us, so we're ready to, to finish it off anytime. I mean, we're decided, we're determined, we're, uh, 
It's either liberty or death, one or the other. Turning up the public pressure on director Estelle, Carrasco and the hostages took a new approach. Carrasco had already given an interview or two. Now he and the hostages went on the offensive, giving a barrage of interviews where they complained about Estelle's refusal to meet them halfway. Novella Pollard took it even further. She got her daughter, Kathy, to hold a series of press conferences right outside the imposing red brick walls of the Huntsville prison where TV and newspaper journalists had flocked from throughout the nation. There were so many journalists on hand, they had basically created their own tent city. Kathy demanded, in no uncertain terms, that Carrasco be given his getaway car. My mother trusts Mr. Orasco to do what he says he will do, whether it be set them free if they're allowed to leave or to kill them if they are not. They're preparing to leave if allowed to. I don't know how long the negotiations will go on. Mom is afraid not very long. My mother and her other teachers want to leave with these people. There are too many lives at stake now to keep them up there. In other words, your mother is asking prison officials to let them go. She's begging, begging for her life, for the lives of her teachers. The siege had already gone on longer than anyone expected. 24, 48, 72 hours crawling by. If they didn't realize it before, now the world knew that Carrasco meant business. The ball was in Director Estelle's court. It was truly up to him, the veteran prison official, to make the final call. End the nightmare or not? From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Standoff. Hey, it ain't so far to Mexico that I can't find my way. They're taking me down to Huntsville. I'm not gonna stay. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. This is Chapter 6, The Blitz. Red McCaskill was the assistant director of the Texas prison system. Hostages like Judy Stanley were literally under the gun for days on end. Their nerves were fraying. Hello? Yes. This is Judy Stanley. Yes, it's Red McCaskill, Miss Stanley. Would you please send us some more Valium? We need it badly. We're just about to the breaking point, every one of us. Can you get some more up to us? Uh-huh. How much more are you? Um, how much did you send? Uh, boxes? You know, there's so many of us, and we're taking two or three, four pills apiece. Huh. I mean, we need it. We need something, to. Well, is, I mean, if we just send them on up right now, that'd be okay. Yes, that'd be all right. Meanwhile, as Carrasco kept up his media blitz on the phone with one news reporter after the other, his sidekick Rudy Dominguez was showing his sadistic side. 
further terrifying the hostages. Rudy had come over, and he was standing not very far from us. And he talked low, and he didn't want Fred to hear him because we had told Fred that he just harassed us at every moment, you know. He says, you people think you're going to get out of here. He says, there's no way. He says, you mean nothing to me. And this was on Sunday morning, and he was standing there holding his gun. This is hostage Aileen House, the prison's head librarian. I was the nearest one to him. And he says, we want to do away with all of them. And says, of course, you will be the first. And uh, this was very broken because he didn't speak very good English. And uh, so we said, we understand, Rudy. We understand anything to keep him sort of calm. And uh, then Fred came in and he said, well, I had hoped this would be over in 72 hours. But it looks as though it's going to be another 72 and possibly still another. Another 72 hours, three days, maybe even a week of this torture. Can you even imagine? Aileen House was getting desperate. So I thought, well, you know, we've got people here whose minds are going. And they're not going to last through this thing any longer. And uh, so I began to sort of psych myself out, I guess. (laughs) And... uh, I thought, well, somebody's got to get out because we couldn't say anything. They were monitoring every word that was said on a second phone. Aileen was a no-nonsense type, older than most of the others. She'd spent nearly three decades as a public school teacher before joining the prison education system. Aileen had forgotten her blood pressure medication on the day the siege began. When she came to the realization that, well, somebody's got to get out, she was thinking of none other than herself. As Aileen plotted her escape, Rudy Dominguez continued to harass and torment the male hostages, especially Bobby Hurd, the young prison guard, and Anthony Branch, the teacher everyone knew by his nickname, Jack. Several times they would tape them and put them right close to the door, and that what they were going to do was to shoot Hurd and roll him out the ramp. And then they were going to shoot Branch and roll him out. And then tell everybody else, or tell the people that, you know, every 15 minutes they're going to shoot one hostage until everybody was gone. They just gloried in the, in the cowardice that they thought Heard was showing, especially Heard. And they, and they did everything they could to make him grovel and appeal, and they just really worked on the man's nerves tremendously. And, uh, of course, Ron Robinson, when he broke, well, they took delight in, in harassing him. And uh, it seemed that it gave him a great deal of satisfaction to have one of these crises. One night after dark, tensions reached the boiling point. Rudy Dominguez, the loose cannon, nearly lost it. He was convinced the prison guards were coming for him. Oh, Uh, It was Thursday night, I think, that the seven shots came. And those were nothing more than Rudy's uh, hot head, a book where they had sort of tumbled things around over in the college uh, textbook area. 
slid off the shelf and hit the floor. Several of us saw the book fall, but to him, this was somebody coming through that wall. So he went over there and he pulled books off just indiscriminately, you know, and he listened and he listened. And uh, so Rudy, after he got the books off the shelf, he backed off and uh, he had told Fred they were coming through. And Fred says, you ladies get up and come up here and get on the floor. We all got up and went up then, got in on the floor. Then Carrasco yelled an order to Father O'Brien and Ron Robinson, who were also nearby. Father says, you and so-and-so hit the floor. Just, just lie down on the floor. So Rudy got a few steps back from this wall, and he sprayed the wall with six shots, one right after the other. And then he quickly put one more shell in and shot it. I don't know why the extra shell, but that was what he did. And then Fred, to reinforce the idea that they had uh, plenty of ammunition, uh, had, uh, I don't know who was, he had some of the, one of the women, to tell them that he was going to shoot two times through the door at the chapel window. He says, now watch your chapel window. I want to show you that I can hit what I want to hit. Before the siege, the prison chapel is where Fred Carrasco had worked as an orderly, where the international kingpin seethed from the indignity of sweeping the floors and emptying trash bins. He could see the chapel through the glass door of the third floor library. Well, of course, he shot at an angle, and the glass from the shot shattered and went this way. And it hit uh, Linda Woodman, and that's who was at the phone, Linda and Judy Stanley were handcuffed together, and Linda was doing the talking for Fred, and she got hit by a little piece of glass somewhere up around her neck, and she and Judy, she just literally pulled Judy off her feet around to the back side of the desk and got down below the, the desk top, and Branch thought he had gotten a sliver of glass in his eye, but he didn't say a word. He just sat there until about two hours later when they relieved him. Carrasco was feeling confident in his library stronghold. The front door was the only way in, the only way out. He and his henchmen had also used filing cabinets and bookcases to build interior defenses where they could retreat if need be. At night, when the hostages were supposed to be asleep, Carrasco and his men began to work on a secret weapon. Here's Aileen House again. Uh, Fred stayed up every night. And Rudy, and well, Rudy hardly ever slept. I don't know how that man kept going. That's why I thought he must be taking something. Because uh, he didn't sleep over an hour every 24 hours. And uh, Quavis would sleep once in a while. Uh, because I was the only one away. I didn't sleep but about six hours, first four or five nights. First night, I sat up all night long in a chair because I could not lie down on the floor because of my back. The next night, I lay down about three hours, and, well, I kept staying there, but I was not asleep. And they would get up and they'd get, do all this activity during the night. And they moved a study carol over halfway between the entrance and the back corner where we were. And then they started bringing law books, and they stacked them up as uh, protection. And uh, 
Then one of the inmate captives came over and he had a load of something. And I said to myself, my God, they've got hand grenades. It was, the light was dim and I could just tell it was some kind of metallic objects. And uh, so then he's, he went over there and they had saved a spot in this study carol on the shelf. And he put one down, you know, and it says clank. He put another one down, and I couldn't tell exactly how many. And then a second inmate came with the load, and then a third. I couldn't tell exactly how many they had, but I could tell roughly the shape. And I said, no, they're not hand grenades. They're not shaped right. But it's something that they're doing for their defense. If not making hand grenades, what were these guys up to? Aileen was about to find out. And then the very next night after that, Quavis came over and he was, he really was seeking recognition for his brain power, you know. And he came over and whenever any of them came around to talk, well, I always, I got right up next to them, sort of behind them, because I wanted, I was trying to see what kind of people they were and what they were doing thinking. And he uh, started telling us, uh, he, he patted his pocket first, and he says, I got a, a, a what you call a instrument uh, equipment, says, uh, I make a bump. And I thought, well, that must be what I saw last night. And uh, so, so one I was asking, there were about three I was sitting on the floor there. One said, well, how did you make a bomb? He said, it easy. He says, I, in army, I assume in Mexico, in ordnance. And he says, I take, and he had this bandolier on him with the full of new bullets, you know. And he says, I take uh, 25 bullets. And I take the instrument and I take out lead and powder and uh, says, I make a bomb. He says, one bomb big. And then he he got to talking about the flues, I assume, that were in the original building that went up the sides for heating purposes. I didn't know what. And he says, uh, in uh, Reba, I said, what, the attic? See, he says, ocho, ocho, uh, says, what you call a, a chim, chimbley? And I said, oh, you mean a chimney? Hostage taker Ignacio Cuevas had his homemade grenades at the ready, just in case prison officers tried to climb up the heating ducts. He says, TDC, says, in the river, big hole, way down. He says, TDC, come up hole. He says, drop bomb, boom, no more TDC. He says, ocho, ocho time. And he says, take a bomb and throw a boring, boom, no more TDC, kill TDC. And uh, so, I mean, we were getting a pretty good picture of what kind of person he really was, you know. So uh, he said, uh, yeah, me, me, smart, me help plan. The bombs, or grenades, were another one of Fred Carrasco's tricks. His sidekick, Ignacio, wasn't the smartest desperado in the bunch, so it's hard to believe he really knew how to make a bomb from bullets. 
But nobody on the outside knew that. The bomb certainly terrified Bobby Hurd, the prison guard turned hostage. Here's Bobby on the phone with prison director Jim Estelle. Mr. Estelle? Yes, sir. Look, they've got two bombs over here. I'm just saying, now, they're going to put us on this deal and shoot. If you don't give them the vest. Now, which is greater, the vest or our life? I mean... I don't want to be killed over no silly vest. That, 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 it's so senseless. And all you got to do is just give it to them. Now, I realize you said your men didn't have, but you can get your men vest. I don't have a vest. I don't have anything. If you come through and give him the best place, we can live just a little longer. And that, that's what we're asking for. Yeah. I don't know what decision you make, but I, my lies lie in that decision. Director Estelle seemed unmoved by Bobby Hurd's pleas. He stuck with his calm and slow approach, trying to diffuse the tension. Mr. Hurd, in a few minutes, why, uh, uh, Mr. Carrasco will be talking to his attorney, yes. and the negotiations are, are still open, and uh, you, just, uh, you just take it easy up there. You know, we're going to do everything we can to get you and protect you and everybody else up there, including Mr. Carrasco and his friends. Hostage Yvonne Besseda who also went by the nickname Vaughn, was having none of it. Hello. May I speak to Mr. Stale? Speaking. This is Yvonne Besseda. Yvonne. And I understand that you would like to see a demonstration of what we have up here. And Miss Pollard is sitting in the door, and the bomb is right behind her. Now, we, honest to God, everyone thought you were a man. And little by little, we can see how you are shrinking, shrinking. You have a responsibility. And I certainly wish that you would look at it. Now, are you going to be a man or are you going to not be a man? Do you want to see her blown up right here? Do you? We've tried. We've tried to be patient. Oh, God, we've tried. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You've got so many hands out there to think. If you can't do it, for God's sake, tell someone else to do things. I'm waiting for an answer. Ms. Besseda, Fred's attorney is going to call him in just a few minutes. You don't know how many times we... You just don't know. I know. And our families and our children. Help us. Help us. 
jeopardize uh, your safety or anyone else's. Why do you want to see a demonstration? Why do you? You don't think that he has, he's got it, he's got it. Not only one, he's got more than one. Take our word. As the 1974 Huntsville prison siege stretched on, Texas prison director Jim Estelle finally made a confession. He still refused to send Fred Carrasco the bulletproof vests and military-grade rifles he badly wanted. But Carrasco was getting something else he'd asked for, bulletproof helmets. The Walls Unit prison had a machine shop. Following Carrasco's own specifications, they welded up three helmets of heavy-duty steel weighing 30 pounds each. When the helmets were sent to the third-floor library, Carrasco fired around to test their strength. The helmet had stopped his 38 caliber bullet. He was pleased. When it was finally time to leave the library, no sharpshooter would be able to plug Carrasco or his Confederates in the head. Just when things were looking up, Fred Carrasco had another reason to fly off the handle. Carrasco learned they put a warrant out for his wife, Rosa. We'll get into her side of the story in the next episode. Here's Aileen House again. On Sunday afternoon, uh, we had had this experience where they heard over the radio that they had a warrant for the arrest of Rosa as an accomplice to his escape. Well, that was the most furious that Fred became during the whole thing. And that was one of the two or three times that we saw him with a gun in his hand. We were all in the library office, and he came to the door. And he said, the ladies, everything has changed. He said, we are not going any farther. They took Hurd and Branch out and stood them at the door, and it came in. They put handcuffs on Father O'Brien's hands and feet. And they tried to do the same thing to Ron Robinson and had us all sitting around the wall. 
When their captors went to another room of the library, inmate Steve Robinson turned to his fellow hostages and suggested an all but unthinkable plan of action. So they said, well, uh, this Steve Robinson says, a lady says, I hate to say it, but says, I think the end is here. And he says, I cannot face that gun. He says, I'm going to take an OD. Would anybody like to follow suit? They had the pills. An overdose, mass suicide was now on the table. But two or three of the women immediately said, yes, I would. And then he sort of took a poll and uh, looked at each one, and some said no, and some said yes. And he asked me, I said, no way. I said, I've never depended on anything like that. And I said, if it comes to the end, I said, I'm going to look him right in the eye, and he's going to have to turn me around and shoot me in the back, or he's going to have to look right at me when he does it. He said, well, Ms. House, I can't do that. I said, well, I'm, if I've got to go, well, it's in the cards and there's nothing I can do about it. And, of course, soon after that, well, the tension lightened and I took the handcuffs off again. So, I mean, it was just one crisis after another, though, the whole time. The hostages were near the breaking point. Steve Robinson is the same guy you heard on the phone with the mother of his child. Despite the uncontrollable feeling that things were going to end badly and soon, he and the other hostages talked it out and they backed away from the ledge. They would live to see another day. That didn't stop one of them from making a desperate and drastic decision of his own. This is Aguilar. Remember Ben Aguilar, the prison employee who served as a translator during the siege? I checked in at approximately 5 o'clock this morning, everything was running the same as usual. Aguilar went into the warden's office. The prison had actually bugged the library, so Aguilar was listening in. It was pretty quiet. A radio played. Approximately 20 or 25 minutes later, after I had checked in, the sound of breaking glass came through. Some screaming in the background, someone hollering, no, please don't, no, no. At about that time, an officer came rushing in through the door and said something like, they're coming out, or there's one convict outside. I rushed out through, out of the warden's office. I could see inmate Escamilla down at the bottom of the ramp from the library. Like Steve Robinson, Enrique Escamilla was an inmate who happened to be in the library when the siege began. He volunteered to stay and become a hostage. But Escamilla almost immediately regretted his rash decision. He was scared out of his wits and had spent most of the standoff by himself in the attic, serving as Carrasco's lookout through vents in the library's exterior walls. Assistant Principal Novella Pollard knew Escamilla prior to the hostage crisis. Escamilla, he was in my typing class. He's a very strange person. He never did talk much at all in class. In fact, for two days, I didn't see him. I thought he had left, and he was on the other side, sitting up in the roof. With every day that went by, 
Escamilla became more fearful for his life. Then, bright and early on Monday, July 29th, the sixth day of the standoff, his captors made a big mistake. They made him sit near the glass door. It was his turn to be the human shield. Freedom was just too tempting for Enrique Escamilla. They had some boxes over there. And, uh, you know, I was uh, sitting on the boxes. They put me there. I had gone without sleep for, you know, a little bit of time. Of course, Aileen House was watching everything. And uh, so I, I didn't hear anything, but I had just sort of looked up just at the right moment. And Rudy, of course, was standing by the door right by the side of her. And Escamilla rose to his knees. He was up on a pile of tables and boxes of books. And he rose to his knees, and I thought he thought he was seeing something down close to the ramp, maybe, and was trying to see. And then he, he stooped to get a spring, and he hit that glass. Of course, it broke some, but he didn't make it out. You know, he sort of bounced back, and he fell back on top of Branch's back. Branch had stooped over, and he got his second spring from Branch's back, and that time he went through. Well, then Branch saw him when he rolled down the first part of the ramp. And <clears throat> so Rudy put his gun down to her's head and yelled, let's shoot a hostage. Well, Fred had gone to sleep. He had been asleep about 30 minutes when that happened. And uh, so, of course, the noise of the glass brought him up in a hurry. And all of the hostages that were asleep, you know, they came up. They thought TDC was coming in. And I said, I said, don't get alarmed. I said, just ask me to jump through the door. And, of course, everybody then became frightened that the other three would leave. And we knew that things would get real rough if there were just those three up there because they were having too much to do, you know. They couldn't watch everybody and watch the exits and the attic and everything they were trying to do. With the library in chaos, Escamilla was out. But he was in rough shape. The broken glass has shredded him up. Ben Aguilar was watching the whole thing from a safe distance. He didn't dare to run and help, exposing himself to Carrasco's firepower. Escamilla was bleeding badly. Ben Aguilar explains what happened next. He lay there for a few seconds, not knowing which way to turn. It seems, it appeared to me at the time that he was wanting to crawl across the yard towards the hospital. He raised his head a couple of times. He, he was undecided. At that moment, I rushed to the outer gate in the bullring, and I crouched, cut my hands, and I hollered to him in Spanish, lay down, just relax now crawled back towards us, crawled so many yards forward, and then turn to the left and go down into the alleyway in front of the kitchen, come on back over towards us, and keep low. He did what I told him. It took Escamilla a couple of minutes to crawl from the ramp. Then he got on his feet and came toward Aguilar. I told him to get down, 
I ran to him. I pulled him down. I frisked him to see if he had any arms on him. I, I brought him back in towards the bullring. We laid him across there. Some officers assisted me at, at the moment that he came through the door there. I, okay, we got him down, laid him on the, one of the mattresses. The man was bleeding. He was scared. I, I spoke to him. I told him, how are you feeling? He said, I'm okay. He says, my God, or my God, uh, I'm so glad that I made it. He said, I, I didn't expect to see this day at all. I said, why did you jump? He says, they were going to kill me anyway. He said that Dominguez had been threatening him for a few times before that he would be shot anyway because he was a snitch. We made him as comfortable as possible. We, uh, we, we wrapped his hands in uh, towels. We, uh, <clears throat> we gave him a pillow. We, we made him lay down. And then uh, at that moment, uh, the officers uh, at the front facing out towards the yard, uh, one of the officers came in and said, they're coming out, they're coming out. So then I knew that, I mean, I, I, at that moment I thought, well, they're going to come out shooting or something. So we we pulled uh, Escamilla into the bullring, and he lay there a minute. Then, then he got up and he said, I don't want to be killed. He rushed back to the back door, dragged him into the, uh, into the uh, barber shop, and we laid him down again. He seemed to calm down there a little more than he was. He felt safer inside there. Uh, he asked, am I, are we going to the hospital? Am I going to be taken to the hospital? I said, yes, we're getting somebody here as soon as we can. Ken told him, just relax, the doctor is coming. Sure enough, within a few seconds, a doctor showed up and applied tourniquets and bandages to the cuts on his arms and hands. The worst cuts were the, the arms and the hands. The bleeding was profuse. I asked him then, I said, how do you feel? He says, I feel very weak. And I uh, told him, well, it's because of the loss of blood. Don't worry, we're, we're getting you. Escamilla was going to be fine. He'd taken matters into his own hands and lived to tell about it. Now the prison officials had questions. They wanted to know if Escamilla had any clues, anything at all, that would give them an advantage. For instance... They ever use mirrors up there? Yes. Where do they have the mirrors? Well, uh, they carry them in their, in their hands. Carry them in the hands. What about that big one come out of the bathroom? Well, uh... <laughs> Yeah, they use it for, uh, to look out, out the door. Look out the door? They have it mounted up there on top of the file cabinet or somewhere? Well, yeah. Can they see real good with it? Mm-hmm. They can see everything that's in the yard? Mm, yes. Hostage Jack Branch was often stuck in front of the door by his captors. With hours to contemplate, he had also been considering a crash through the glass when Escamilla took his leap of faith. I had thought about it, trying to get out of there. Yeah, I don't jump out the window like that. Sure did, but that that soon got out of my mind. I I, I was thinking about killing myself. You know, I would have killed myself. I bet you. 
It was a crack in that door, the glass door. And the glass was thick. If it hadn't been real thick, then I, I might have jumped out of it a little bit. You could get out of there, but you kill yourself in the process. If they uh, survived him, he nearly bled to death, they said. He almost killed himself. And yet, Escamilla was not the only hostage who would make a daring escape that day. Remember way back on day one of the standoff when Dr. Glennon Johnson, the director of education and recreation, got to leave because everyone thought he had a heart attack? Aileen House certainly remembered. When I began to feel that I, well, I had to do something and I couldn't fake a, a real heart attack because I had seen Johnson go through it and there was no way that I could do that, you know. And I, I just really... I guess thought myself into a nervous state or something, you know, and my hands actually did go numb, you know, and I was just feeling numb clear up to my elbows and my feet. And so Miss Pollard and one of the others said, Aline, are you all right? And I said, no, I'm real sick. And uh, so she came over and she started rubbing my hands, you know, and got somebody else. And I just saw her fell back and went limp. And uh, so she sent Steve Robinson, who was sit- sitting at the door, to get Fred. And Fred came in and he, he knelt down right by my shoulder, my right shoulder. And he reached over and he picked up my hand. And he said, Ms. House, are you all right? And I said, no, Fred, I'm, I'm pretty sick. I said, I tried to see it all the way through, but I can't make it. So he didn't hesitate. He jumped and ran from the room. And <clears throat> he rushed back to the door and said, uh, uh, we've got help on the way. He said, just hold on. And he had uh, Steve Robinson and Martin Kuros come in and pick me up and carry me out and lay me on the floor there close to the door. And... I sort of squinted my eyes and looked up, and Rudy was standing right over my head, you know, with this gun right between my eyes. Aileen stared into the business end of Rudy Dominguez's revolver. Was this the end? Was she going to be killed? Discarded? Because she couldn't withstand another minute? I thought, well, my God, I'm not going to make it anyway. And, uh... Fred uh, had been talking to someone, and he turned around and saw him, and he shoved him. He says, no. Shoved Rudy back. And uh, then he called, I think, Heard and Bryant, they told me later, to help him lift the thing up over all this barricade. And I just knew I was going to fall off all the way down the ramp because it was it was bumping and bobbling, you know, and... And I, I thought, well, I can't afford to, to grab a hold of something. If I fall, I just have to fall, that's all. And uh, so then uh, these two inmates that were pushing it out to wherever I got in the ambulance, you know, they said, is she still with us? Is she still with us? And if it hadn't been so serious, it would have been funny. And then when I got in the ambulance, of course, the two uh, civilian fellows, you know, well, they were just as upset as the two inmates. And and I just felt real 
uh, sort of cheap in a way. But I didn't think TDC knew anything about these bombs. I didn't think there were so many things I had seen and heard. It's hard to believe Aileen House would feel guilty about doing anything and everything to escape that library death trap. But her decision to leave clearly bothered her. She justified her actions reckoning that she had details, inside information, to share with Director Estelle, giving him a leg up in the negotiations. Aileen had seen the bombs with her own two eyes, but she had no idea they were fakes. Coming up next time on Standoff, Carrasco's patience finally pays off. Fred, I want to thank you. Uh, that was, that was, let me put it this way, that was a very, very brilliant move on your part. The staff is considering it very, very seriously. They're making arrangements to get a truck from the Brink Armored Company. Uh-huh. Brink's truck. See. Now, I don't know what time, but it'll be ready tomorrow. Be ready tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, Fred Carrasco was about to exit the building. Standoff is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer and story editor is Jason Hoke. Audio editing and sound engineering by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score for Standoff by Max Baca, with additional music from Flaco Jimenez on accordion. Music engineering by Tony Gonzalez. Our main theme, Huntsville, is performed by Ray Benson and was originally released on the Merle Haggard and the Strangers 1971 album, Someday We'll Look Back. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Carrasco audio tapes from the Texas Department of Corrections, courtesy of the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. Special thanks to the staff of the Texas Prison Museum for their generous help with research materials. The Corridos, La Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Nuevo Corrido de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Corrido de Rosa Carrasco, and El Corrido de Alfredo Carrasco are published by San Antonio Music Publishers Incorporated and are courtesy of DLB Records. Special thanks to Eastside Music Studios in Austin, Texas. Have questions? Contact us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love the show, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. San Antonio writer Greg Barrios passed away during the production of this podcast, as did William T. Harper, author of 11 Days in Hell. I hope this show honors their memory. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.